This is a weird case because he said, first of all, I didn't do it. I'm not the guy that shot him. But even if he did, he had the legal right to do that because it was in self-defense. Hey, I've got a gun. I'll use it if I have to. Uh, I've called 911 and they're on the way. Y'all need to leave now. Yeah, the best prosecution theory is that uh, he was just shooting wildly and randomly in their direction without any regard for whether he hit anybody or not. There's a decent possibility that that bullet is now in Mexico. This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West, Steve Moses, and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, this is Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening into the podcast today. We'll be exploring the case of George Allen Kelly. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's a high-profile case out of Arizona. Kelly is a 73-year-old rancher. His ranch, 170 acres, is just yards away from the Mexican border. He's been arrested on charges of murder. The allegation is he shot and killed a member of a group of migrants who had crossed the border illegally and were on his ranch. He claims that they were armed. He claims that there was a shot fired before he fired his shots. Uh, It's an interesting case. It brings up important questions about using firearms to defend your property and, and how your defense of home considerations might be different if you're on a remote, expansive land than if you're in a suburban neighborhood. We also, there's themes of prairie justice in this. There's allegations that George Allen Kelly was just simply tired of migrants illegally crossing the border and using his property to further their alleged crimes of drug trafficking or human trafficking. And then this is a warning shot case in many ways. George Kelly claims that he fired a warning shot at this group or several warning shots from his AK-47 uh, discovered only later on that day that one of the people had been struck with a bullet and killed. The case gets more complicated from there. There's a lot of interesting twists in this. There's still a whole lot we don't know. This case is unfolding. It's in the court system. It's currently scheduled for trial in September of 2023. We'll probably revisit this a couple of times as more information comes out. We do the best we can with the information we knew in this podcast to draw some lessons for armed defenders and concealed carriers. We're going to be joined by Steve Moses. He's a CCW safe contributor, a well-regarded firearms instructor. He'll talk about some of the tactical challenges that George Kelly faced in this incident. And we'll talk, of course, to Don West. He's a venerated criminal defense attorney and national trial counsel for CCW safe. And he'll give us some insight into the very unique legal challenges that uh, Mr. Kelly faces in this case. So here we are. It's my conversation with Don West and Steve Moses on the George Allen Kelly case. Today we're going to talk about the case of George Allen Kelly. He's a Arizona rancher, and he's just been charged with second-degree murder for shooting 
uh, a migrant who was illegally crossing the border. His property is on the border. Uh, he's been plagued with this problem before. Uh, I read that he had called the, uh, I don't know, the official bureau in charge of, of the border uh, dozens and dozens of times over the course of the last couple of years reporting these things. Uh, and on this particular day, he claims that he was having lunch with his wife when a group of men encroached on his property. And Don, you read the pleading that the his lawyer filed uh, that details his testimony pretty clearly. Uh, he sends his wife inside. He feels that what he thinks is the leader of this group is armed with uh, AK-47. And he fires what he describes as warning shots to get them to leave his property and they leave and we'll get into some more of this detail, but there's a, a number of phone calls made to the authorities who are in charge of the border about this. And uh, it's not until later in the day near uh, sunset, I believe that he discovers about hundred, 120 yards maybe from his house, the body of one of the people in that party shot in the back and then he called it in and uh, said that the body was on his property you want to fill in some details there don i got a copy of the statement that his attorney filed with the court prior to the i think it was prior to the preliminary hearing at that point mr kelly had actually been charged with first-degree murder, premeditated murder under Arizona mm-hmm. law. He later then, uh, it was reduced to second-degree murder and added two counts of assault with a deadly weapon, which is what he currently is faced with uh, for, in the trial court. But sure, that, about, the assault with a deadly weapon would be for the other people in the party, right? Yes. I, as I recall, the deceased, of course, is the uh, alleged victim of the shooting, but then there were two other individuals who claimed that he, they were present and saw him pointing the gun, firing the gun in their direction, if not at them. But they were not struck and not injured. So this thing happened really fast, meaning charges were brought right away. The highest charge, first degree premeditated murder, was brought right away long before the forensics were done, probably long before there were uh, exhaustive investigation into potential witnesses. One of the witnesses that wound up testifying was actually interviewed in Mexico. They each may have their own sort of agenda and bias, but nonetheless, there was evidence presented that George Allen Kelly uh, fired the gun uh, at them in their direction, and that, of course, one of them was was killed and found deceased on, on the property some hours later. There is no bullet that has been recovered from the body of the deceased. Apparently it was a through and through round, so there's no way at this point in order for the ballistics work to be done specifically as to his weapon. There were uh, uh, some cartridges, some empty casings rather, found in the area of his porch and that was more than 100 yards away from where the body of the deceased was found. It's my understanding that following up, 
There was a more exhaustive search. I think there have been now a total of three search warrants executed at his house, including ATF's involvement with, Steve, you may know more about this, with their ATF canine unit. And my guess, without knowing more there, is they have trained dogs that can help identify a gunpowder or explosives or something that they would use the dogs for to try to find casings in the general area where the deceased was found. Because one of the witnesses claims that Mr. Kelly was only about 10 feet away when the shot was fired, and yet there are no casings found in that area, in, in that proximity, as I understand it. So there's lots of facts unknown, lots of facts in dispute. Uh, Sean, I think you may have mentioned, if not, um, you were going to mention it, no doubt. There was a radio, uh, a communications radio found where the deceased uh, was found. He was wearing tactical boots and, I believe, camouflage clothing. They were described earlier as having large backpacks. So there's all sorts of issues. Were these individuals part of human smuggling? Were they crossing the border to uh, make their way into the United States to stay? Or were they part of a drug smuggling group and that the backpacks may have contained fentanyl or who knows what? Uh, I think it's sort of commonly understood that these uh, human smuggling things aren't necessarily going to be violent, that that happens so often. People often see these groups coming across the border and moving around. On the other hand, there's also a lot of drug activity and cartel activity where it's highly likely that they are armed and serious and more than capable of defending themselves vigorously if they're approached. So we have a radio, we have the sighting that uh, one or more of them had guns. On the other hand, we have some witness statements that they were just kind of on the property passing through. So I'm going to be really interested to see how the forensics play out. But right now, George Allen Kelly was arrested for first-degree murder. He had a $1 million cash bond that he could not post. It was later changed to a, a surety bond so that he could post it using property and other pledges of collateral. So he was released and is currently not in jail waiting for these, um, the case to move forward in the system. I was, uh, as, as an aside, uh, I was very impressed so far, I am very impressed so far with his legal counsel, a woman named uh, Brenna Larkin, who has done a bang-up job so far from what I can tell and is uh, thorough and aggressive, but she has her work cut out for her. Steve, uh, what about this case caught your attention besides uh, what Don's mentioned already? I would love to see a uh, picture of uh, where this took place. I'd like to see a picture of uh, or photo of where he was allegedly standing and uh, where he found or the body was found and where he thought they were when he uh, uh, allegedly, you know, fired warning shots. If it was uh, mesquite trees, which you see a lot of that down around the border, there's some open areas, but, you know, there's also a lot of mesquite trees. There can be cactus, all this other stuff. Uh, any of those, when struck, can affect the trajectory of the bullet. 
you know, there are people that say, well, I want a brush gun. And typically what they're talking about is a big, powerful, slow moving bullet because they said it'll punch through brush. Well, the other thing that it can easily be deflected. It can deflect those bullets, especially true with a relatively lightweight and fast moving round like, a, you know, 7.62 by 39 millimeter uh, you know, bullets, somewhat, somewhat aerodynamic. And regardless of that bullet's construction, if it struck a limb or put through some brass, I mean, through some, you know, some, I will just say light limbs or leaves or stuff like that. Uh, it could very well have deviated. It could have, you know, upset the trajectory. There's just all sorts of things that could have taken place. And without, you know, uh, seeing that bullet, uh, I don't think we'll ever know. Most self-defense cases are affirmative defense cases, which means that the armed defender admits, yes, I shot that person, but I did so justifiably. And in this case, the lawyer is propositioning that, in fact, the person who was killed may not have even been killed by Kelly's bullet at all. And that even if he was, Kelly was justified. Don's going to give us a few of those theories of the case. We've got a lot of inconsistent testimony on both sides here. There are still investigations going on. There's still analysis going on. Uh, a lot of things that we don't know. A lot of facts are being contested by both sides, right? And so we're going to begin our conversation on this case without a real solid understanding of what kind of things a jury will ultimately look at in this case and, and be uh, either stipulated to or to be substantially proven true. Uh, and so th that means we approach this in a lot of ways looking for lessons for armed defenders and concealed carriers with hypotheticals. And, you know, we are also, Don, you and I defend people in court. We're, we're innocent unless proven guilty kind of guys and we're advocate for armed defenders. And so I think in this conversation, we're going to give a lot of credibility to the defender's testimony. Uh, I think a lot of our discussion will move forward as if that's factual and we'll talk about some of the lessons we can draw from that. Uh, but before we're done, we'll consider what the state's position is and if their facts are true or, or substantially true, uh, you know, we'll discuss what that would mean and maybe pull some different lessons from that. Does that sound fair? It, it does. I would, I would like to just sort of identify several different theories that are still in play right now as the case is being investigated so that we can touch upon those as maybe the conversation would, uh, would, sure. would suggest. So the way that Mr. Kelly's lawyer offered it in her pleading uh, with the court, and I'm going to assume that's his story at this point, and she would be reckless if she didn't verify as much of that as she could prior to putting it out there. She doesn't have a, an affirmative requirement to offer his statement at this point. We know that if there's a self-defense claim being made, there needs to be some evidence of self-defense in the record. But this isn't a trial. The preliminary hearing wasn't a trial. It was for the judge to find probable cause only. It's not where you put up your defense necessarily. But she put this in the record and um, 
essentially argued that. So we'll start there and also, of course, said that some of the information that was offered uh, by law enforcement was somewhat inaccurate or incomplete or misquoted Mr. Kelly about certain things. And then there was some testimony from the two witnesses, the people that were in this group that were moving through the property. Sure, sure. One of which appeared in court with like glasses and a hoodie drawn tight and referred to only by his initials, uh, which is, uh, I think, uh, as a defendant, kind of distressing to see someone testifying against you who the state won't let them be identified. Yes, yes, of course. Um, So let me just point out, I think, three possible scenarios that will have to be explored and then ultimately included or excluded. Uh, Kelly's theory is that he heard the shot, and that's what got his attention to these men that were moving through his property in camouflage with backpacks and what he described through his lawyer's pleading as the leader pointing an AK-47 at him. That's what prompted him to fire a number of rounds well over their head, basically saying he couldn't possibly have fired the fatal shot because he purposely fired them way over his head. So the, the lawyer's theory is that shot that he heard, which got his attention to this group, was fired by one of the drug traffickers or some, someone else involved in this, and that Kelly, in fact, didn't fire the fatal shot at all. It was fired by somebody else. Sure, and if they never find the bullet, there's no forensic analysis that could link that to his rifle. And the contention is they were all armed with AK-47. That's right. So it could have been not even his bullet at all. That's that's some reasonable doubt that you definitely want a jury to consider later on. And then there was the pile of casings near his porch, which would suggest that if the shooting was from that distance, that's well over 100 yards away from where the deceased uh, was discovered. Uh, another theory is that from the testimony of one of the witnesses, Mr. Kelly wasn't on the porch when the fatal shot was fired, and some of the other shots, he was down near them and jumped out at them, kind of ambushed them, came mm-hmm. out behind bushes and fired a number of shots at them, including the one that killed the individual on, from only a few feet away, maybe 10 feet away there was a number of shots and that this witness identified Kelly and also claimed to have seen his stricken friend in his last moments as he fell forward uh, and then and then died. It's, it's curious that he no longer had the backpack when he was found and we don't know what else he didn't have when he was found that he may have had before, like an AK-47. But nonetheless, sure. that scenario puts Mr. Kelly within just a few feet of these guys, as if he left his porch, went out past his property barn, and then got up close to them before he started firing. It's my understanding at this point there haven't been any shell casings found in that general area, and that's why I think that um, that ATF dogs were brought out, maybe or maybe metal detectors. Who knows what forensic efforts will be made to identify the actual location where Mr. Kelly fired shots, and he obviously admitted that he has. So, and then the, um, the third scenario is the one that Steve, I think, probably ascribes to more than, than 
the others, and that is that he was firing over their head, thought he was firing over their head, wasn't necessarily trying to hit anyone, but was in fact trying to scare them off from his porch or some distant spot, and one of the rounds went astray, and he accidentally killed this guy when his purpose was actually just to run them off. So I think you've, you've got theory one, he didn't kill anybody. The shot that was fired was fired from one of the, the group. Number two, that the witness that claims he was only a few feet away hasn't been corroborated. That story doesn't have any substance to it. In fact, that same witness said, in addition to shooting at them, Mr. Kelly also shot a horse. Well, there's no dead horse out there either. So it's, that story gets pretty crazy and and uh, not reliable. He got the locations wrong, and it almost as if he was being too helpful, trying to fill in the blanks. Of course, he was in custody, so he has a high incentive to get favorable treatment by the system. And then, of course, the, the other theory, the one that actually makes sense legally if he's charged with second-degree murder, which he now is, and that is it was just a stray shot. I mean, his goal may have been to scare them off, but in fact... He missed missing and actually wound up shooting. So we have the state saying that Kelly was just shooting wildly at these intruders without regard for human life, and that makes him guilty of second-degree murder. Kelly's attorney is saying that, hey, we think this guy was shot by someone else's bullet. We can't prove that it was Kelly's bullet that did it. And even if that defense fails, we've still got the traditional self-defense argument that Kelly was justified in using deadly force. Get more on that. So, of course, the state's going to have to prove that it was George Kelly's bullet that resulted in this guy's death, right? If they can't prove that, then the case sort of ends at that point, I would think. At least the murder case does. Maybe the assault cases would continue in some way. But they're going to have to connect the dots on that. And if they don't have direct evidence then the state would have to rely on circumstantial evidence to connect the dots on that. And we know from what we've read that that bullet entered and cleanly exited the body of the decedent. So that means if the state's case rests on them being able to find and prove that was the bullet that killed him, gosh, well, that bullet could be anywhere. Steve, what do you know about the ballistics of uh, AK-47 round? We're talking about a high-powered 7.62 by 39. It's probably just a typical, uh, you know, AK-47 round with a heavy uh, copper jacket. Uh, they tend not to deform. Uh, the bullet, when it hits somebody, can typically do one of two things. It either punches straight through. Or in some instances, the bullet starts tumbling or what they call yawing, and it becomes a relatively devastating, you know, injury when that takes place. So what we could very well have is a circumstance where that bullet went straight through and oh, maybe went 100 or more yards. There's a decent possibility that that bullet is now in Mexico. Now, Don, I want to clarify something you said there, because like if they can't prove that that bullet was his, which means and they'd have to find the bullet to do that, or, or they'd have to rule out beyond a reasonable doubt that there was any other 
uh, guns involved there. So, so I mean, just as a point of procedure there, can the state move forward with this question? The defense saying it was someone else's bullet. He was shot by the drug cartel, not by our guy, uh, if they can't prove it. I just wanted you to expound on that a little bit more. Is there circumstantial evidence that that would have been his bullet enough uh, to to take it to a jury? I think it's enough to take it to a jury. I don't think a judge is going to have uh, the intestinal fortitude to dismiss the case based on that. But I don't know. I, I shouldn't speculate like that. But my guess is the circumstances are close enough in time that Mr. Kelly admitted firing a number of shots in the general direction of these guys. His defense to having not hit one of them is, I'm sure I didn't because I pointed the gun so high in the air. But maybe, mm-hmm. maybe not. If there is a similar wound that would be made by the gun that he admits he has, in other words, the AK-47 he admits he fired can't be excluded as the gun that caused the fatal injury, then you've got another piece of that puzzle. And I think the question becomes, is all of that circumstantial evidence consistent with guilt or not? If it's consistent with guilt, sure, that's enough to prove that he fired that shot, at least enough to get it to a jury. If there's clear evidence that's inconsistent with guilt, then it doesn't take a whole lot of circumstantial evidence inconsistent with guilt for the conclusion to be unreliable. So, for example, if there's a clear uh, forensic determination that his the fatal shot could not have been fired by an AK-47, then I think that's very helpful to Mr. Kelly. So I don't know. I don't think we know enough yet. I, I think that that's probably why the ATF has gone out there with their dogs. My guess is there's... Um, going to be a lot of metal detector activity in that area trying to find a projectile. But of course, even if they do find a projectile, how are they going to know unless it's clear there's blood on it or something that connects it to that particular shooting? That's an interesting aspect of it. I think everyone sort of assumed when they heard the story that, yes, he fired at these guys and um, tragically one of his rounds hit and killed this guy. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. But that's has to be tested and challenged, and it's the rightful job of the defense lawyer to be sure that Mr. Kelly isn't convicted unless the state can, in fact, meet its very high burden of proof. And, and that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not there would be a separate claim of self-defense. You know, that this is a weird case because he said, first of all, I didn't do it. I'm not the guy that shot him, but I think the subtext is, and his lawyer would say, but even if he did, he had the legal right to do that because it was in self-defense. We talk about in this podcast, we've explored warning shots a lot, and our conclusion has been that they're uh, almost always a bad idea. And if we're going to assume that this defender was intentionally firing warning shots, then this teaches us a lot of good lessons on why our conclusion is probably correct. There's two scenarios here, if they were warning shots. One is that one of them inadvertently struck and killed somebody while they were running away from him 
on the property or he's going to be charged for somebody being shot that he didn't shoot but the circumstantial evidence is there because he was firing warning shots right mm-hmm. if someone else a drug cartel shot this guy now he's suspected of this guy's death because he was firing shots by his own admission on his property i mean the guy's just in a world of hurt if he hadn't fired if he didn't intend to stop right the the attackers steve i mean let's go back to to gun handling 101 you know why don't you fire if you're not firing to to stop an attacker well uh first of all let's just say from a tactical perspective in that i want these people to you know break contact the fact that i fired a warning shot is very much an indication that our may or may not be willing to shoot them and i think we've seen in the past uh some instances where people were actually threatening other people with guns and the response of the uh you know the the, the person that we'll call the criminal offender was, oh, I don't think you're serious about it. So we talked about, you know, there were several instances where people would actually try to come up and take rifles away from the, uh, you know, from the armed homeowner because they thought that person did not have what it takes to shoot them. So that means, A, I probably, I'm really going to be reluctant to shoot you. Uh, the second thing is, is that in many instances, that is a felony. That is, you've committed aggravated assault, uh, arguably depending upon where the round, actually uh, the trajectory of the round, that could be considered attempted murder. And finally, we see where people fire warning shots. Now, sometimes I'm not sure whether they said it was just a warning shot or it actually was a warning shot and someone died in this particular instance we see kelly saying i fired a warning shot and there is a dead person on his place so that automatically puts him in a very very bad place and that's probably part of the reason we're having this discussion Uh, one one last thing on this kind of scenario where your claim is there are a whole bunch of people outside of your house with ak-47s and you don't really know what their intent is, and you know from the area you live in and what you read and what you've seen in the past, a lot of these people are passing through. They, it's more likely probably they're passing through in their drug trafficking or their human smuggling than they are targeting you specifically, that they showed up on your property to come get you. And what is likely to happen if all of a sudden these people committing crimes but not intending to commit them against you, but rather to use your property to, to go somewhere else. What happens when you start shooting at them, right? They have the flight or fight mental state too. They've got to do something. They either have to hightail it out of there or they have to, in their minds, defend themselves. And, and Don, he's facing these assault charges, which are pretty serious on their own there's no assault charges in this case if he doesn't fire warning shots a warning shot can be charged as an attempted murder perhaps as an aggravated assault which is serious on its own even if nobody's struck well we remember marissa alexander from jacksonville whose defense was i fired a warning shot at her estranged 
and violent husband. And of course, the prosecutor framed it as it wasn't a warning shot. She missed. So you, you always have that issue separate and apart from what your actual intent was. But let's make it clear that when you fire a gun, you have gone from displaying, brandishing the threat to use deadly force to actually using deadly force. When you fire the gun, you have now used deadly force, whether your intent was a warning shot or whether your intent was to actually hit the person. So first of all, he made that decision. He may not have known that's what he was doing legally, <clears throat> but by firing the gun, he then used deadly force. So the question becomes, was it justified or would he be given the benefit of the jury if they were looking at whether they could justify, even if legally it didn't really support it, could they give him a break in this instance? And maybe if he were only charged with assault, they might uh, think, thinking that, well, you know, look at where this guy was and these people, even if they believe his story that these guys were out there with guns and uh, they're going to have to um, really want to bend in his favor to justify him firing shots in the general area of these guys, even if he didn't hit anybody. Well, remember from uh, the Michael Dunn case, the shooting of Jordan Davis, he was the trial twice because the jury mistrialed on the murder charge against Jordan Davis. But that first ju jury, even though they couldn't decide on the murder charge, was in agreement that the shots he fired at a retreating vehicle were attempted murder. And he went, he, he was convicted for shots that struck and hurt nobody, even when they couldn't agree on the murder charge there. So, so, so I, I think that we have to address whether or not he had the right to shoot the person that he believed was pointing an AK-47 at him. Sure, and the core legal justification for the use of deadly force is that the shooter feels that there is an imminent threat of great bodily injury or death at the hands of another. And so Steve, nuts and bolts, tactically, does somebody with a rifle at 100 yards pose an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death? Uh, I would say absolutely they can pose a threat. And I would say how imminent it is, I would say extremely imminent. I would be very, very concerned about someone pointing a rifle, much less shooting at me from a distance of 100 yards. Interestingly, I, I wonder how much his own perception and the reliability of that perception enters into this. His claim was that the person that was the leader pointed an AK-47 right at him. And that's what prompted him to start firing these shots to run them off. Well, that first shot, I would think, in response to someone having an AK-47 pointed at you would be justifiable if you reasonably believe that this person poses an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death. Well, all of a sudden, if he's pointing an AK-47 at you, Steve says, sure, that's an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death because all he has to do is pull the trigger and you're dead. Can you assume otherwise? Well, that's almost gets into some of these other conversations we've had about what was the, what was the other guy's intent? 
Did he actually point the gun at him? Was he intending to use it? We've seen some of those open carry cases where people respond to someone who's open carrying, claiming that they pointed the gun, that they believed they were about to be killed when it's not clear that was actually what was going on, but it was a reasonable perception. So if Kelly's version that he had an AK-47 pointed at him and he needed to respond, uh, then I think there's a pretty compelling argument that shooting this guy under these circumstances would have been justifiable. I don't know how you justify all of the other rounds. It might depend on what happened after you fired that first one. If they took off at that point and you kept firing, you're no longer facing that imminent threat. I think that they're too far away from the house for you to credibly and plausibly claim that they were in your house on your curtilage and that your lethal response to that threat was presumptively, um, you know, that your reasonable fear of great bodily was presumed in that s setting. We're talking a big piece of property. These guys are pretty far off. So legally, I think it gets pretty complicated. The defense lawyer wants to make it pretty simple. This guy threatened Mr. Kelly with an AK-47. He pointed it at him, and Kelly's intent was benevolent in that he fired over their head instead of shooting him. Yeah. Yeah. A couple things there. One, and we talk about curtilage, which is obviously structures or things that are attached to the house. So we're saying that th these guys were on his property, but they weren't on or near his house or anything that could be strewed as, as part of his house. So, so castle doctrine principle doesn't really apply here. Castle doctrine giving generally in most states, the defender, the assumption that anyone that's there poses a, a deadly threat or the threat of great bodily harm just by the fact that they've impinged upon your your castle, right? Your home. But a hundred yards off on a huge expanse of property doesn't carry those same presumptions for the defender. That, that's what you're saying in that case. Yeah, right? I think so. I'd, I'd want to know more. I don't know why these guys were so close though. A hundred yards isn't that far if they've got 170 acres to work with and wide open spaces, why would they even get that close unless they were in fact intending to come to the house, go to the barn, do something, whether it was innocuous in the sense they wanted water or shelter and they were just going to hide out since it was daylight for a couple of hours, uh, trying to be undetected. Who knows what they were really thinking, but in my mind, 100 yards is pretty close. So I would have every reason uh, if I were George Kelly to be worried about it, especially if they were carrying guns and especially if one seemed to be pointed in my direction. So. A lot of home defense cases that we explore are people in suburban houses facing an unknown intruder outside on their property. But that equation tactically is different when you live in a remote place on a big expanse of land. And if you see armed people on your property coming towards your home, you have reason to be concerned. And we're going to talk a little bit about how to handle that tactical challenge. Don't forget, there's some history and some background here. Where he lives, what is generally known about what happens along the border. Uh, we know from the news recently, there were, what, three or four people kidnapped 
that were going into Mexico for a medical procedure and two of them killed. So we know the rent, yeah, lots and lots of violence, unpredictable random violence. Yeah, and Steve, here's a big issue I wanted to get into with you because, you know, I read this, I read about this case in pieces as the news was coming out. And the first thing we know is only the rancher side of the story. And, and I put myself in his shoes, the idea of having, uh, let's just say that they're armed men with combat fatigues in a group on my property when it's just me, an elderly man, and my wife, that's terrifying. And we've talked before, like in a suburban setting, someone's banging on your door, don't go out the door to challenge uh, an intruder, go find your hard corner, communicate, be ready to have the tactical advantage if they get that far. But I have to think that, you know, let's pretend it's a wooden house that AK-47 rounds could penetrate easily. And I've got a, a group of people that Don the point are suspiciously close to my house within a hundred yards on a gigantic 170 acre ranch near the border. Uh, in this case, it doesn't seem quite as uh, bad an idea to want to make some show a force to make sure they don't come and overpower you in your house with rifles. I mean, I'm curious what your thought is on that. Well, uh, first of all, I believe that that would be reasonable, especially since at that point uh, they were still 100 yards away. Uh, He did not perceive himself to be under uh, an imminent threat of being shot or they weren't shooting at him. I don't see anything unreasonable. And, you know, telling people leave now, I always say leave now. I've called uh, the Border Patrol or I've called law enforcement. I'm armed. I will protect myself. And again, nothing quite as stilted as that, you know, just something like, hey, I've got a gun. I'll use it if I have to. Uh, I've called 911 and they're on their way. Y'all need to leave now. And ideally, the people would say, "Okay, well, he knows we're coming. He's armed. Okay." what's our objective and is it worth the risk of uh going ahead and trying to move closer or even engage this guy with gunfire really what would be a good reason for them to engage him in with gunfire at that point i'm going to say under the circumstances probably the likelihood of that happening is is very slim because there's basically nothing for them to um to to gain so i think that's a good plan by the same token if they started coming closer, I would just have to play that by ear. It may be at some point, okay, I need to move my position. I need to continue uh, to issue commands. Uh, and then it's like, oh, my God, I've got no choice. I need to get into my house. And then when I get into my house, the big issue is, especially with multiple potential attackers, is that they can gain entrance into your home uh, from, you know, uh, windows on the first level, uh, probably has multiple doors that may have a garage that has connected in which they can enter the house. Uh, you can get a lot of people in there in a very short time. Those are great points, Steve. And a lot of what you're saying there, and we've talked about this in other cases in different scenarios where if there is some distance, then you have as the armed defender, the opportunity to create either some, some physical or even, uh, the ideological barriers, right? Thresholds that they have to cross. So if you are able to 
articulate at that distance, I'm armed, right? You have your rifle in a low ready. You're not pointing it at anyone. You're not firing it, but you're clearly, that's a silhouette that's recognizable, I think, from a distance. And then you can articulate, authorities have been called, don't come closer, leave my property immediately. Don, if, if he was able to say that in his statement, that, listen, I had called the authorities, I had I'd yelled out to them to leave, they came closer, I warned them again, uh, and then I fired, that, that's a different story. And, and he'd be able to adjust and justify the, th- the threat that he felt along the way. And, and, I, and we had a guest on one time that talked about uh, having a bullhorn or a megaphone as part of your self-defense arsenal. Because who has those cops, right? But just, I, I like to throw that out there because I thought it was such a great idea that when it comes to communicating, even at a distance, having something like that uh, as a step that you took before firing a, a deadly shot could help you in, in the aftermath. Yeah, you know, that scenario that you painted, Sean, imagine if that had happened, as Steve says, you know, you, you make a, a display um, by showing that you have the ability to defend yourself. You have a firearm and you're ready, but you're not threatening them with it at that point. You're using voice commands or whatever else is available to tell them that you know they're there and that you want them to leave. You call the police and then you judge each of their reactions. Well, if the reaction is to move closer to you instead of away from you, and as they continue to move closer to you and you tell them, stop, I'm calling the police or whatever voice command you use, and their response, the leader's response is to raise his firearm and point it at you, I think it's pretty clear what you need to do and probably what you are legally allowed to do at that point. You've done everything to address any ambiguity about what they intended, whether they were in fact a real threat or whether they were just wandering through the property some going somewhere else but had no intent to harm you. And frankly, even if you shot them at a hundred yards, in my mind, if you're able to recount that sequence, then your training and knowledge and understanding all becomes very, very relevant to why you made those decisions when you did, knowing full well that if you didn't do something about that point in time, if there were a half a dozen or 10 of these guys that were armed, they could have swarmed the house and you couldn't have done much about it at all at that point. So from a tactical standpoint, even though the uneducated or untrained might say, wow, that's too far away. Those guys really couldn't have done anything to you. You jumped the gun. You shot too soon. Steve could, you know, clearly articulate that. And if you were charged, I think an expert witness comes in and talks about exactly why, as that played out like that, it was not just legal, it was the right tactical decision to make, too. George Kelly had complained frequently about the migrant traffic through his property. And there's a suggestion in this case that he wasn't acting only out of self-defense, but that he had had enough of the people trespassing on his property, using his property for perhaps the furtherance of crimes, and that in this case, he took the law into his own hands. 
Yeah, let's, let's talk about this, because this is a big theme in this case, and I think it actually does have a, a chance of impacting the trial, even though maybe legally it shouldn't. These uh, people who came on his property were uh, crossing the border illegally. They were probably, and there's some evidence that suggests that they were involved in other illegal activity beyond just entering illegally, either smuggling drugs or human trafficking. They're not sympathetic, uh, what the prosecutors would call victims at this point. Um, and I think in a lot of regards, uh, this rancher is going to have a lot of people's sympathies that his land has been encroached on by people illegally entering the country and crossing and trespassing on his property. Uh, I think that would make you unsettled. And that would give you, and knowing that it's often drug activity, that the fear that they would be armed, even if they're not apparently armed at first, is there. And um, what I'm leading to here is unless the state can really tightly show that he didn't face a threat, let me come at this in a different direction. We talked about prairie justice before. You know, the Byron David Smith case out of Minnesota where he had been... This, this guy living alone, people had broken into his house before. He's broken into again on Thanksgiving Day, and he lay in wait in his basement. When they the two intruders came down there one at a time, he shot them, and then he executed them when they were incapacitated on his floor. And uh, he claimed self-defense, but the evidence was clear enough that he wanted, probably tried to lure, make it look like he wasn't home, to lure somebody in so that he could exact vengeance or, or get some sort of, you know, what I call prairie justice. This is a whole different case. He didn't lure anyone onto his property. They weren't even in his house. But he had been, from his point of view, victimized by this crime before. And he was sick of it. And there's a theory in the prosecution that this was an opportunity for him to lay down the law. And, you know, I think... Some people, some of the even the defenders who've done this, uh, feel very justified at the moment, and then later, especially when they've confronted the fact that they've killed somebody. Even even Byron David Smith was disgusted by the dead bodies and what happens to a dead body in his basement, and was angry at them for what he thought they made him do. Right, the. It becomes clear later that something bad has happened here and, and they weren't as justified as they thought. We know that excluding almost everything, that the the core justification for the use of deadly force is if you're facing the imminent threat of great bodily harm or death at the hands of another. And I think that it's possible in this case that and in a lot of cases that this idea of either revenge against someone who's harmed you or threatened you harm or committed some crime against you ekes into that decision and sometimes overlaps uh, or that there's a sense that the authorities are not taking care of life or death business here and I have to step up. I mean, I mean Steve, I see you reacting to that. Like, what, what are your thoughts there? And is there some of that play, at play at this case? Well, uh, I think that there is at least a reasonable possibility that the impulse will be 
to deal with this person right now, there is a possibility that you're angry at that person for doing what they've done, doing it repeatedly, uh, or you're just, I like, like you said so well, uh, I'm, I'm tired of this. I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not putting up with it anymore. And I tell you what, I absolutely understand how that people might feel. As a matter of fact, I think in part that this is something that occasionally gets law enforcement officers in trouble when they encounter perhaps a repeat offender that seems to be committing these offenses and they're not getting punished. And so by golly, we're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to do something now that hopefully will dissuade this person from, you know, continuing that kind of conduct. I think that that is something that, you know, concealed carriers and armed homeowners need to think about right now, make a decision in advance that there is, if that impulse takes place, that you will not act upon it. And it's a, I completely, I completely understand it. And, uh, you know, I've been in positions before and none of the, I'm not talking about a lethal force encounter in which, you know, I basically wanted to confront another person. And if it went physical, I was going to be perfectly happy with it, except I knew that I wouldn't be happy with the outcome. And so to that end, you know, you just got to choke that down. And the cool thing about that, if you want to say it's cool, that is that once you get away from that and you think about what you wanted to do and what could have happened and the fact that it didn't happen because you said, okay, I'm going to be mature about this. Uh, I think probably you feel like that was a good decision. I kind of wonder right now what was going through Mr. Kelly's head when he went out there and he saw something that he thought, uh, this may be bad. I believe it was his dog that discovered the, the body of the uh, descendant, uh, and he, uh, or deceased rather, of uh, the deceased. And, uh, as soon as he got on top of it, can you just imagine, you know, the emotions and the thoughts that must have been going through his head? It's like, uh-oh, uh, I don't think this was a good idea. As an armed defender, what you say before and after a self-defense shooting can have a huge impact on your legal defense. And it can even have an impact on whether or not you're even charged in the shooting and in the George Kelly case, Mr. Kelly said a lot of things before, he wrote some things, and things after during the number of phone calls that are going to give him a real challenge. We talked about how it seemed like law enforcement was set against this guy up from the beginning. They, they charged him with first degree, they've downgraded it to second. They, they gave him a million dollar bond, which is very high in a case like this. but. Uh, in one of the initial hearings where the defense attorney was trying to adjust bond and, and get some other concessions, um, it was brought up by law enforcement that he had changed his story throughout the day, right? That he, And to Steve's point, he gave too many statements for his own good. And, I, and we've seen, like in the uh, Ted Wafer case, sort of a, after the fact, a tendency for a defender to try to make their story better from their point of view. 
uh, and their statement evolves. Uh, I would have a theory that in this case, the police seem so sure he was guilty of a murder here in part because he kept changing his story or his story kept evolving throughout the day. Do you think that's a factor? Well, that's the defense lawyer's nightmare is when you have inconsistent statements by your client. It gives a lot of opportunity to challenge the entire version of the events because there are some inconsistencies. Are they minor inconsistencies? Are they uh, a big deal? Were they made to the same person? So there's less chance they weren't misheard or misunderstood. Are they recorded? Are they not? But generally speaking, if you say one thing and then you change it even slightly, especially if as the story progresses, the the appearance is you're trying to make yourself look better, maybe downplaying certain things and expanding on things you may have not mentioned before. Yes, you, you put yourself in a big hole when it comes to credibility. There's this notion of consciousness of guilt that people say and do things uh, because they, they feel guilty or they're worried about it, so they try to fix it up front. Uh, in this case, I'm not, uh, I'm not yet satisfied. There were as many inconsistencies as what were alleged. I don't know what was recorded. I know there was a question about whether he claimed the individuals were armed or not right up front. There was a, an officer that said he didn't say they were armed, but then on the other hand, the dispatch that went to look for these guys said they were armed. So that's the sort of thing. Did he say it? Didn't he say it? How did it get lost in translation? Again, that'll have to be all sorted out. The, the, the general advice is exactly right, though, as, as uh, Steve, Sean, you've pointed out. Say what you need to say. Establish the basics only, and then... Um, express your willingness to cooperate, of course, but request an opportunity to talk with counsel. I think in this case that um, Mr. Kelly didn't know anybody was shot during all of this until the end. And I also think, so then, then you know, the, there was a big issue that had to be dealt with. And he did it responsibly. You know, he didn't go bury this guy in the desert that he easily could have or drag him somewhere with one of his horses and dig a big hole and and pretend nothing ever happened, whether he did it or not. Uh, he called the police, he acted responsibly, and that's, that's to his favor. The other side of it is, and Steve, you point this out before about warning shots. We all talk about warning shots. We've talked about warning shots forever and ever. I think he didn't know how bad it was to fire warning shots right from the beginning. He may not even have thought he had any uh, liability, any criminal exposure by firing the warning shots, that he did what anybody would have done in that situation. He took a stand. He was sick of it. He needed to protect himself and then his family. And then, of course, I think it expands into, this is my property. I'm going to take a stand. You're not allowed on my property. I can use my God-given rights, my constitutional rights to defend my life and my property, and I will. Well, unfortunately, that's only partially true. So when you start firing shots over people's heads to protect your property, that's a whole different kettle of fish, isn't it? Yeah, and it's partially true, Don, depending upon who sits on his jury. Because 
I have a feeling that if the jury is mostly property owners in that part of the country, he's going to get an awful lot of sympathy and the the quote-unquote victims of this shooting are not going to get any sympathy at all. On the other hand, if the jury are a lot of people who maybe they're migrants themselves or have other sympathies for the people who are crossing, uh, they might judge him much more harshly. And, you know, we've both been involved in cases where here's the fascinating thing about a jury, right? The, the law is the law. The judge instructs the jury what the law is and, and gives them guidance on how to proceed. But in the end, the jury can do and decide what the jury wants to do and decide, and they don't have to justify it or explain themselves. And if the jury just doesn't want to convict a 75-year-old man with no criminal background, I assume, from what I've read, uh, of protecting his elderly wife and himself from what clearly seemed to be uh, cartel-type people trespassing on his property, I don't know, the, the prosecutor has a big mountain to climb, doesn't he? I agree. I agree. And this is one of those cases that you probably win as a lawyer. You probably win in jury selection. If you're lucky enough to get the right jurors that share that view, although they will profess to follow the law exactly, take their oath as jurors, uh, their personal perceptions and biases no doubt will, will favor in, including while they may be told not to have sympathy or base their decision on emotion, this is the kind of case, I think, where that would drive it significantly. And then you're going to learn, they're going to learn that the guy that died was a uh, uh, frequent flyer. You know, he, he'd been in the U.S., he'd been deported, re-entry after deportation. He, in some jurors' minds, no doubt, will exemplify the problem at the borders. A guy comes in and out at will, with friends for whatever purpose, but no matter why they were there, they were up to no good. And that's how this case will start off, I think. Don, I want to talk about this as we're, as we're starting to wrap up. We, we talked about how his inconsistent statements, the rancher's inconsistent statements after the shooting are uh, a lawyer's worst nightmare. This is also a case of uh, what you say, oftentimes well in advance of a use of force scenario can cause you problems potentially and in this case uh george allen kelly self-published a short novella on digitally on on amazon about a rancher on the border who uh has to take uh step up and and be an enforcer you you read this literary work i believe I'd love you to recount uh, perhaps a critical passage from it uh, and tell me as a lawyer how, if, if that could be admitted to evidence and what impact that might have on uh, a jury considering what his state of mind was and what his real motives for firing at these trespassers was. This is a fascinating uh, example of the sorts of things we've talked about before when we tell people don't say stupid stuff on Facebook. 
don't have stupid bumper stickers that can be interpreted as having a predisposition or a particular mindset when it comes to um, firearms and the use of firearms. Don't say things that could come back to be used and claimed by the prosecutor as a window into your thinking. Because, of course, ultimately, uh, what's going to have to be proven by the prosecutor is what you were thinking, uh, why you were thinking it, and whether what you were thinking and why you are thinking it when you pulled the trigger is ultimately reasonable. Now, we have this little wrinkle in this case, not knowing for sure whether it was George Kelly's bullet that wind up killing this guy. But if you get past that, and they're able to show that, yes, one of his bullets did kill this guy, now he's going to have to defend in, uh, for self-defense. He's gonna, that's his best plausible legal defense is self-defense, that he had the right to shoot these guys because of them being armed and them encroaching and uh, uh, not fleeing. And as a result, he needs to be able to show that he was of calm mind that he wasn't predisposed and that he responded to something they did. And that's what set this off. So uh, Mr. Kelly, the self-published author, tells a story about having a ranch near the border. He even uses names that are the same as his and, and uh, his family members. And the context is there are people coming from across the border um, up to no good. And in one of the scenarios, some horses that are on the ranch are being stolen and he's giving chase uh, for people that are stealing his horses. Uh, I don't know that that directly relates to the scenario that he found himself in a few weeks ago, but there is his description of some of the events in the book, I think that's going to give the prosecutor uh, maybe an opening uh, whether it would become admissible will be as a result of a long-fought hearing, and the judge will have to make that decision. The defense lawyer would want to keep this out, I'm sure, just never have to fight that fight if they can avoid it. But um, some of the, the, the version, uh, some of the language in, in the, the story that he was saying, I'll pick it up just and read a few sentences of it, where now he's talking about these guys that stole his horse and were headed toward the border and he could recognize that one of the horses was a horse named Sonny uh, that was dear to him. So here's where I'm reading. The riders were less than 100 yards north of the border and riding full out. He, meaning in this instance the character George, emptied a clip as close to the horses as he could without hitting them, comma, the horses, that is. So that, that's a reference to him firing at these riders on his horses, expressing the, the concern that he might hit the horses, a whole lot less concern that he might hit the riders. So uh, emptied a clip as close to the horses as he could without hitting them, the horses, that is. The riders pulled up at the border, jumped off and started returning fire. Then they, um, et cetera, et cetera. Then in a few pages, when he's talking with the sheriff about what had happened, the sheriff, I'm reading again, the sheriff asked if George thought he had hit either of the riders. George told him that if he had hit one, he hadn't hit him hard enough. So 
again, he's essentially saying he was shooting at the riders. Uh, he, he may have struck one, but if he did, he didn't hit him hard enough, apparently, because he didn't find the body somewhere is a reasonable interpretation. The sheriff didn't reply. He just smiled and shook his head. Here's, I think, an important sentence, too, um, when it comes to this prairie justice notion that you're talking about, where you um, shoot first and ask questions later kind of thing. I'm reading, George then told the sheriff that if he didn't want him to protect his property by whatever means necessary, he had better arrest him there and then. So it's kind of the challenge, you know, I'm going to protect my property even if you won't. Reading here again, the sheriff acted like he didn't hear George, but as he left the ranch, he told George privately that if he ever did shoot a mule, he didn't want to know about it. And a mule meaning a drug trafficker, not a horse-like animal. Yeah, it had nothing to do with jackasses. (laughs) (laughs) so so don i mean a lot of cases i've been involved in both criminally and civilly there is a pre-trial hearing that pretty much makes or breaks the case outside of any motion to dismiss right uh so they're going to have a hearing almost assuredly on whether or not this passage this bit of literature is presented at trial and and it could potentially make or break the whole defense yeah yeah how would it be received by the jury would they would they give it significant weight as being a window into his mindset where he's going to shoot first ask questions later where probably akin to the the notion of second degree murder is this in fact him saying I'm going to shoot at anybody that's threatening me or my property and that if I hit him, that's tough luck because the sheriff isn't going to do it. I have to take it, take it into my own hands. And if they think that was actually a reflection, not just of his thinking when he wrote this, but as a general reflection of his viewpoint then he's got uh, a script, doesn't he, for what happened in this case. And uh, he shot at these guys, and then uh, if he hit them, fine. If he didn't, so be it. And then after the fact, he has, as you were talking about, he has to backpedal and come up with an explanation how there's no way he could have shot this guy. He shot way over their heads, et cetera, et cetera, when in fact uh, he and the sheriff are having this private conversation in the book that, well, you know, okay, if I hit one, I hit one. Uh, just don't tell me about it, sort of thing. Yeah, and we talk about one of the elements, the classic elements of second-degree murder is that you act without regard for human life, right? With a depraved mind is some of the language, depending on where you're at, right? And so I can almost imagine a scenario where a prosecutor or somebody finally downloads and, and reads this book and gets to that line where he says, you know, he missed them, the horses, that is, right? As as absolute evidence that he, he cares about the horses more than he cares about people, thinking, you know what? Let's make this a second-degree charge because I got the evidence right here that's going to prove it. I mean, that, that's a likely scenario of, of why the charges got dropped because they have a much better second-degree case with this evidence in 
than than first degree. He, he spelled it out for them, potentially. Yeah, the best prosecution theory is that um, he was just shooting wildly and randomly in their direction without any regard for whether he hit anybody or not. If he could have, he probably would have. If he didn't, well, then they ran off. But that he wasn't very concerned about the actual consequences. All right, my friends, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. This is a fascinating case. It's ongoing. I'm sure we're going to revisit it a couple of times before it's all wrapped up. We'll have something new for you very soon. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. Yeah, I had nothing to do with jackasses.